Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my locally independent friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we answer a mailbag question about some foundational principles of regression and correlation, specifically the differences among correlation, standardized regression weights, semi-partial correlations, and partial correlations. We also check in with someone from Season 2, Amanda Montoya's undergrad mentee, Kat. Along the way, we also mention app-all-o-g's, mocking by text, particle transporters, walk like an Egyptian, how Patrick spices up parties, getting currened, your plus one, visuals in an audio format, great faces for podcasting, George Clooney, Beaker, and Fool Me Once. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. So, Greg, hmm? I owe you an up. <laughs> I owe you an up. Uh-huh. Oh, you're making such progress. That's one syllable. I owe you an up. <laughs> oh, one more time. Come on. Come on. Dr. Michelle told me I should break it up into little baby words. I owe you an app. Allah G. <laughs> now I can post process those closer together <laughs> and it will sound like the word. App. Allah G. <laughs> So it turns out that Goldie left you alone to single parent for a while. Yes. And I took the opportunity to openly mock you on <laughs> several different levels. <laughs> Multiple times a day. Thank goodness for text. How did we mm-hmm. mock one another before text? I have I no know. idea. Mm-hmm. It turns out that Andrea has decided to remind me of what she does in the marriage and has left me for a few days <laughs> going out of town. And it is not lost on me that I am now in your place. Now, granted, I have no headlamp. I am sound asleep at 4 a.m. And so I am not going to completely model your own single parenting behavior. But suffice it to say that it turns out we don't have a particle transporter where the kids just go from (laughs) one point to another magically. So I'm trying to understand this. She's teaching you a lesson by punishing the kids. It's a mediated effect. All right. So how's everybody holding up then? I'm fine. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, people, you see what I'm dealing with? (laughs) Setting the minor issue aside of I'm not sure where the children are right now out in the world. Mm -hmm. At some point, I do have to go get them. You have granted me a wonderful favor by not trying to record an episode at 4 a.m. or whatever Mm -hmm. ungodly hour you make us meet. We have less time than usual to record. And so Mm. what I thought we could do is stick with our plan that we talked about for this season Mm -hmm. and try to work in a couple of other things that we were going to do. Yeah. One was some brief check-ins. That one totally blew up in our face, thanks to Ethan. (laughs) We're going to try again later on in the episode. I thought we could do a a mailbag. What do you call it? Let's go with mailbag. The truth is, we get a lot of correspondence from people, which is really, really nice. We get emails. We get DMs. People ask all kinds of questions, sometimes really technical questions, sometimes questions about available resources for things. And one of the things that I really like is how many people appear to be, for better or worse, using some of the materials that we have out there as part of their curriculum, weaving it into their classrooms, which 
you know, as two people who seem to like teaching as we do, that's a very, very nice thing. It is. One that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I just think it's so fascinating how do we carve up the different kind of effects that we encounter in the multiple regression model? Yeah. We have correlations and partial correlations and semi-partial correlations and regression coefficients and standardized regression coefficients and multiple R-squared values. These are all different ways of looking at measures of association, and they are an endless source of confusion. Mm -hmm. I can say that because for a number of years, I was endlessly confused about how do you interpret these, what do they represent, and how can you use them to augment the story that you're telling to the reader? I remember being a graduate student trying to learn the differences among things like multiple correlation and partial correlation, semi-partial correlation. And I was learning the differences by trying to memorize formulas and patterns in formulas. And I didn't have a really clear sense of the distinctions among them or purposes of them. And I'll be honest, even the first time when I was teaching multiple regression, I had to work at it, right? It wasn't natural. So there's a lot of sources of confusion in here. No question. Let's kind of start from basic principles and then just build up from there. Okay. So let's go back to our favorite curmudgeon, Carl Pearson with a K. <laughs> Good old Carl himself took Galton's idea and mm -hmm. formalized it in a mathematical expression. And it's what all of us use on nearly a daily basis, a Pearson product moment correlation. And we use the word correlation all the time. But it has a very specific meaning, and it was one that Pearson really, really nicely refined, working his way through the concept of covariance, uh, which is a little bit trickier to understand because it's tied to the metrics of the original variables that you have, into a unit-free measure, the correlation coefficient. And we all speak correlation coefficient by now. Intro stat students speak correlation coefficient. There's some textbooks that will show six or eight or 10 different ways of calculating the correlation coefficient. Uh -huh. And one that's really interesting is we forget the genesis of the term of the product moment correlation, mm -hmm. the Pearson product moment. Let's say we have a continuous measure of depression and we're interested in alcohol use and drug use and we have some continuous measure of alcohol use, let's say, and we want to get the correlation to capture that linear relation. We can standardize the scores on depression. So remember a standardized score, a z-score, mm -hmm. is we just take whatever the observed value is, subtract the mean and divide by the standard deviation. That's a standardized score. So we can get a standardized score on depression. We can get a standardized score on alcohol use. You can take the sum of the products of those. Mm -hmm. So take my standardized score on depression and alcohol use, multiply them, add them to Greg's, add them to yours, add them up for the whole sample, divide by N minus one, and that's the correlation. That's the product moment part. It's a beautiful thing. And if it's the case that people's z-scores tend to correspond, that is, they're above the mean on the first variable while they're above the mean on the second variable, or they're below the mean on the first variable while they're below the mean on the second variable, then when you take the product of those, the positive times positive gives you a positive product, the negative times a negative gives you a positive product, and overall, that average that you described where you're dividing by n minus 1 comes out to be a positive number because there is that correspondence. On the other hand, when someone's deviation is above the mean on the first variable and so they have a positive z-score, 
but they're below the mean on the second variable, and so they have a negative z-score, or vice versa, those products wind up being negative. And when you take an average overall, it is a negative average, and so that's when we get a negative correlation. It's a very, very clean and clever system. It is, and it goes back to one of the fun things that is a cornerstone of almost all statistical modeling, which is if we know something on one variable, does that allow us to know something about another? As you just said, if you're above the mean on depression, do you tend to be above the mean on alcohol use? If Mm -hmm. you're below the mean on depression, do you tend to be below the mean on alcohol use? And that's what this is capturing. So we have this Pearson product moment. This is sometimes called a bivariate correlation. We're making an assumption that the two measures are continuously scaled. So you're moving up and down the number line. It's not ordinal. It's not binary. And it's linear, right? That's a big poke in the eye with correlations. We all learned in undergrad stat that you can have X and Y that is, say, an inverted U. Mm -hmm. There's a very famous example of X is anxiety and Y is performance. At very low levels of anxiety and very high levels of anxiety, you have the lowest performance, but you want to get that mid-level. Your sweet spot. We can have an inverted U where the Pearson correlation coefficient is zero Mm -hmm. because it's a linear association. So that's like a starting principle. We've got a bivariate correlation between two continuous measures that's capturing the linear association between the two. Now let's take that to a regression. One predictor regression. Okay. Which is something we would never do with one predictor, as we will talk about in a moment, as rarely if ever would you do a one predictor regression because we actually have all the information we need without the regression model. Mm -hmm. But let's say that we were going to use depression to predict alcohol use. Mm -hmm. All right, here's something you should have at your fingertips. A regression coefficient is equal to the covariance between your predictor X and dependent variable Y divided by the variance of your predictor. Mm -hmm. That is going to give you a regression coefficient that is scaled in the raw units of X and Y. Y in the numerator and X in the denominator, right? Yep. It's rise over run. Rise over run. (laughs) That's my algebra teacher told me. Change in Y over change in X. And I remember I had to memorize some definition of the slope. It was something like, for a one unit change in X, we expect a B unit change in Y holding all else constant. How's that? Close? That is close because we don't have anything to hold constant because we only have one predictor at this point. Okay. Keep hanging on to that. All right. We're going to come back to that. The raw regression coefficient is in the natural metric of whatever it is that we're studying. Mm -hmm. Like everything, that is interpretable if the metric of our measures is meaningful and interpretable and is less so if not. So a one unit change in X, well, we need to know what those units in X are, is associated with a B unit change in Y. We need to know what those Y units are, and they need to be meaningful if we're going to put an interpretation on it. That is why, again, that regression coefficient is the covariance between X and Y divided by the variance of X. That's how we're getting that unit change. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an interesting thing. Pop quiz time. 
Oh, geez. Little mini pop quiz. Okay. <laughs> Let's say we reverse the arrow and had alcohol use predict depression. Okay. What would the equation be for the regression coefficient? Well, it's always going to be the covariance between the two variables divided by the variance of your predictor. So if your predictor is alcohol use, you would have the covariance between depression and alcohol use in the numerator and the variance of alcohol use in the denominator. Exactly. Now, what's the weirdo thing about that? The numerator is the same. Yes. If X predicting Y or Y is predicting X, the numerator is the same thing. It's the covariance between X and Y. It's just a matter of do we divide by the variance of X or do we divide by the variance of Y? In a one predictor regression, all we're doing is rescaling the covariance in a way that we believe has some meaning to us. But let's go back to the X predicting Y. We want to know if depression predicts substance use. There may be situations, and there very often are situations, where our raw metric, our natural metric of our measures are maybe not interpretable. Sure. Maybe they're an ordinal variable. Maybe they have some liquor kind of qualities. Maybe we don't want them in the raw metric. We want to somehow standardize them. Mm -hmm. We want to put them on some metric that we can interpret. We've already done one relation in the regression, and that's the raw metric, and that's B. Now we're going to move to a standardized regression coefficient. And what we're going to do is we're going to remove the metric from X, and we're going to remove the metric from Y, and we're going to put it on a standardized scale mm -hmm. where we say a one standard deviation unit change in X is associated with a B star... Beta, B-hat. Greg's shaking me off. Oh, God, I hate them all. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Some use B for raw and beta mm -hmm. for standardized. I don't like that because beta is the population notation. Yes. Everywhere else we tell you, if we use a Greek letter, it represents the population parameter. And now all of a sudden we use it to represent standardized. I hate that. If jabbed with a stick, I will use B star. Hmm. What do you use? Beta. <laughs> oh, God. No, what I do is I tell people that the vast majority of people will refer to these things as a beta weight. And we will use that symbol, but we're really going to try and wrap language around it by calling it the standardized regression weight. Because I, I hate the phrase beta weight. I hate the symbol beta. But I don't think I can change the world just by throwing a star next to a B. Well, since I'm editing this episode, we're going with B star. All right. There it is. B star. B is raw and B star is the standardized. Now, keep in mind, these are all totally arbitrary symbols, and you can do that little Greek guy on the Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. with his hands like up, walk like an Egyptian, remember? Walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> Put whatever you want in, but we call it B star, and what we have now is a one standard deviation unit change on X is associated with a B star standard deviation unit change on Y. That is a standardized regression coefficient. Now, do you want fun fact, Greg? Oh, bring it. In the one predictor case, B star is equal to, wait for it, the correlation coefficient. And the universe just feels right in this moment. And X predicting Y, get a B star. Y predicting X get a B star, they are the same B star. Your good old Pearson product moment correlation is your standardized regression of X predicting Y and your standardized regression coefficient of Y predicting X. 
If you're at a party and things get boring and you want to really spice stuff up, bring this up. And boy, they'll show you to the door and just walk you out to your car. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So till next time. Move them on. Hit them up. Hit them up. You'll get current. You will get current. That's exactly right. Okay, so why would we ever do a regression with one predictor when all of these things hold? The answer is never. Mm -hmm. Never would you do that because there's no new information gained. X predicting Y, Y predicting X, the correlation between X and Y, the covariance between X and Y, these are all the same effect. But when are they not? And that's where things get fun. Enter X2. So all along so far, you've been talking about a single X1. In fact, we didn't even need a 1. It was just X predicting a Y. But the idea of depression predicting alcohol use really is hard to believe that that's the whole picture. So let's bring in an X2. And a nice X2 that we could bring in would be anxiety, for example. So we have X1 is depression, X2 is anxiety, and our outcome, Y, would be alcohol use. If it were the case that our two predictors, X1 and X2, were completely uncorrelated with each other, depression predicting alcohol use, and then we have anxiety predicting alcohol use, and we know that we could consult the correlation coefficients to understand about their relations, If it were the case that the two predictors were completely uncorrelated, guess what's going to happen when you bring them into this multiple prediction situation? Not a thing. Not a damn thing. (laughs) That's right. Because in that unrealistic case where depression and anxiety are these entirely uncorrelated predictors, then when they're part of the same predictive system, they don't have to adjust for the presence of the other thing. They're really helping us to understand entirely different parts of alcohol use. So in that case, they would each have the same slope that they would have from when we did simple regression. And their standardized coefficients, their, what are we calling them, B stars? Is that what you said? Yes, please. Fine. Their B stars would still equal the zero order Pearson product moment correlation coefficients that you had before that you would have gotten from a standardized simple regression. So that is the simplest case. And that's where I'm out. And now I toss to you... (laughs) for what happens when your predictors are correlated. I know I tend to do this of use visuals in what is fundamentally an audio mechanism of communication here, but we're going to do visuals here. It helps so much to think about this stuff in Venn diagrams. Picture a circle that represents alcohol use. That's a dependent variable. Mm -hmm. Now, what Greg described was you have depression and depression partly overlaps with the circle of alcohol use and you have anxiety and that partially overlaps with alcohol use. But the control example that he gave is that depression and anxiety don't overlap with one another. Mm -hmm. Now that would rarely if ever happen in the real world. So now in your mind's eye, take the depression circle and the anxiety circle and let them each overlap with one another. So depression and anxiety overlap with one another and both depression and anxiety overlap with alcohol use. Now you have these intersecting areas where the overlap between depression and anxiety represents the correlation between your two predictors and the overlap between depression and alcohol use and 
Anxiety and alcohol use represent the bivariate correlations that you have between your predictors and your outcomes. But here's the thing, why we can't just look at the bivariate correlations to understand how our two predictors relate to the outcome is part of that area is double counted. Yeah. Part of it overlaps when X1 overlaps with X2, that if you know something about X1, you already know something about X2, and you can't double count that area. You have to lop that out of the equations, mm -hmm. and that introduces what is often called a partial regression coefficient. Mm. It is the part of X1 that is free from X2 mm -hmm. that is related to Y, and the part of X2 that is free from X1 that is related to Y, and those become our partial regression coefficients. And there's a bit of that that's counterintuitive in the sense that I'm left feeling like, where did the part that they share go now? It feels like it completely got purged out of everything. So where's that in all of this? That's going to come in in our friend, the multiple R squared. Nice. Yeah. The partial regression coefficient is going to represent the mm -hmm. unique relation between X1 and Y above and beyond X2. Now, what's mm -hmm. really cool is when you get your head around two predictors, it goes to three and five and 10 and 20. Everything just scales up. And so we can say the unique relation is the relation between X1 above and beyond all other predictors. Mm -hmm. And there's a unique relation between X2 and the outcome above and beyond all other predictors. And then the multiple R squared represents the relation between the optimal linear combination of our set of predictors and the dependent variable. And so what you do is when you think about those overlapping areas, you count up the overlapping areas, but you don't count that middle one twice mm -hmm. that is related to the overlap of X1 and X2. That means that this partial regression coefficient, currently I think we're talking about it as a partial unstandardized coefficient would have an interpretation such that one unit change in, we'll say, X1 is associated with a B unit change in Y holding all the other Xs that are now part of the system constant. We could also express that in a standardized form, which I guess you would call B star. Now it's for a one standard deviation increase in X1. We would expect a B star standard deviation change in Y, holding all the other variables constant. If I'm trying to get my head into this diagram that you are laying out on a podcast for us all to visualize. <laughs> Next, we're going to play Where's Waldo? Uh -huh. <laughs> What you have is this big circle that represents Y and all of the X's overlap to some extent with that. And if we shaded in that whole area where any X is touching, the proportion of that circle that represents all of Y's variability that is shaded is the R squared, right? And then there's a part that's unshaded and that's what's left over. That's exactly right. Let's say that R squared is, I'm just going to make up a number and say 0.22 and to say of the total variability observed in Y, approximately 22% is explained by the optimal linear combination of our set of predictors. I like the optimal linear combination language too. I think that's very cool. And the way I think about it is we are trying to build a Y. Someone shows us a Y and says, you know, it's like the instructions in a Lego set. They show us this picture and they say, all right, you've got these pieces, do the best you can. 
And so we take all the information from X1 and X2 and X3 and X4, and we come up with the best linear combination we can. We're allowed to throw in a constant as needed that we call the intercept, and we build something that looks as much like Y as possible, and we call it Y hat. We are entirely free to think about that as some new variable that we have built. And now if we just ask the question, how does the Y hat that we built correlate with the Y that we had all along as this criterion? We could compute the correlation between the two. We could compute the squared correlation between the two. The squared correlation between that Y hat that we built to look as much like the Y as we had. That squared correlation is just another way to think about that multiple correlation squared. But let's confuse matters a little. <laughs> so you're using your software package of choice uh -huh. and you ask for all the output that is available and you get a table of your coefficients. So you have an intercept, and we haven't talked about that, but what that is is the mean of the dependent variable when all predictors are zero. Mm -hmm. So we have control over what that represents. We can mean center predictors or do a whole variety of things, but that's the intercept. What we're really focused on here are the predictors. You often get four columns mm. in your coefficient table. They're labeled B, B star, I don't think they're ever mm -hmm. labeled that, but I'm going to call it no. that. <laughs> or like STDB, standardized B, whatever. Not sexually transmitted disease B, <laughs> although that certainly could be the case. You have a raw coefficient. You have a standardized coefficient. But you have two little guys that I really like, and I like one more than the other. You get what's often called SR2 and PR2. Or sometimes it will be S-Core 2 or P-Core 2. And what these are are two cool little rescaling of these effects that are the squared semi-partial correlation and the squared partial correlation. These require a whole lot more unpacking for a variety of reasons, one of which is I don't even like them as part of the output. <gasps> You don't like the squared semi-partial? You heathen! I'll tell you, in the regression output, I don't mind the squared semi-partial correlation. But the squared partial correlation coefficient? I told you I liked one more than the other. Yeah, there's no place for that. And I was just trying to be polite. The squared partial correlation has no yeah. business being anywhere. No. <laughs> he comes because you got to invite him to the party. He's the plus one. <laughs> but don't you dare let the plus one reflect poorly on the squared semi-partial correlation. Okay. Because don't you pull that voice with me when given all of my options for how to scale a regression coefficient, mm -hmm. the squared semi-partial is my favorite. Okay. I actually want you to defend why you like it so much. So first, in your answer, your answer will have several parts to it. Hmm. First, I will ask you to tell us what is a semi-partial correlation and how the heck is it different from the standardized slope, your B star in the first place. Second of all, why is it being presented as a squared coefficient and what benefit does that give us? I mean, was that two parts? Anyway. Okay, so briefly, go back to the Venn diagram because we do love visuals in an audio format. Yes. Picture X1 overlapping with X2. So you got this kind of crescent moon of overlap. And then you have both X1 and X2 overlapping with Y. All right. So you have that join overlap. Now go to that little part that is X1 overlapping with Y 
that does not overlap with X2, all right? So it's the part of X1 that is free from X2 that overlaps with Y. Okay, you with me? Yep. Interestingly, that little bit conceptually is what's being captured in the regression coefficient. It is that part of X1 that relates to Y above and beyond X2. The regression coefficient is expressed in terms of rise over run. A one unit change in X1 is associated with a B unit change in Y. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. But we just talked really nicely about this 22% of the total variability that we observed in Y. The optimal linear set of our predictors accounts for approximately 22% of that variability. Mm -hmm. Don't you have a hankering to know of the total variability in Y, what percent is uniquely associated with X1? That's what I like. If you take a squared semi-partial correlation and it equals 0.06, mm-hmm. you can say that of the total variability in Y, approximately 6% is due to the unique influence of X1. It's isolating that little guy in terms not of rise over run. It's going to capture that same effect Mm-hmm. Like it's not going to create an effect. It's not going to take away from an effect. It's going to capture that same effect, but instead of in the metric of rise over run, it's going to be in proportion of variance. I like the idea that we're doing visual things. It's like saying how handsome we are. We have great faces for podcasting. Yes, you do. <laughs> you submit to some society a photo of yourself, but it was actually George Clooney's? And it was up for two or three years. (laughs) It has been replaced, Uh and this one has been up for closer to five years. It's Beaker Uh from the Muppets. Here is my assistant Beaker carrying a lighted (laughs) blowtorch. There is no way this paper can burn. Which admittedly is a little closer than George Clooney. a little closer. I do like the squared semi-partial correlation exactly for the reason that you talked about. That is that it gives us an increment of explained variability in Y. I don't tend to think that much about semi-partial correlations themselves. I do tend to think a lot more in terms of the squared version. If I have to think about the semi-partial correlation, I actually let the words in the name be my guide. Semi-partial means you're only partialing part of the thing that you're doing. So imagine you have both X1 and X2 as predictors of Y, and you let one of those be a predictor. So I let, let's say, X2 be a predictor of Y, and when I'm done, I get some residual left over. I get some error left over. The part of Y that wasn't explained if we let X2 do its full thing that it could do all by itself. A question might be, to what extent is our other predictor, X1, related to that part that's left over, that error, that residual, the part of the Y variable that has nothing to do with X2? So I think about semi-partial correlation to some extent as what would happen if we took Y and partialed X2 out of it, but weren't doing any other partialing. Does that sound reasonable to you? That's exactly right. And again, going back to my beloved Venn diagram, picture that little subpart of X1 that overlaps with Y but is free from X2. That's the whole focus on what we're talking about here, whether that be B or B star or some other scaling of that. A semi-partial is the proportion of that area with respect to the entire circle of Y, all the variants of Y. The squared partial correlation 
is that very same area, but with respect to the residual variance, the part mm -hmm. of Y that is not explained by the rest of the predictors. And so naturally, and this is a huge source of confusion in practice, always the squared partial correlation is going to be bigger than the squared semi-partial. And the reason is, is there's a smaller denominator. Mm -hmm. We're going to take that little area in the Venn diagram, and we're either going to divide by all of the variance of Y, which is the squared semi-partial, or we're going to divide by a smaller variance of Y, which is the residual. I just find that next to impossible to interpret from a substantive standpoint, is going back to making up numbers, is imagine you have a squared partial correlation, and you say X1 uniquely accounts for approximately 6% of the unexplained variance in Y. That just makes less sense to me. So let me be very clear on this. I really like partial correlations. I hate them in a regression context. I think they don't fit the regression context at all and have no business being the squared semi-partials plus one. I think the squared semi-partial could have done better, frankly, than bringing that to the date. I'll tell you why I like partial correlations, but it has nothing to do with this. Picture in your mind nothing that has to do with Patrick's damn Venn diagrams, okay? <laughs> I want you to think about it in terms of the notion of spurious correlations. Now, you and I had a whole episode previously on when variables correlate, might there be some other reason? What was it? The internal validity pre-flight checklist or something like that. We were talking about the relation between the presence of 5G cell towers and COVID rates and how that correlation could be spurious, could be due to some other variables that are related to both of them. And one of them that came up in our conversation, I think, was population density, the idea that population density might have something to do with the number of 5G cell towers. And population density might have something to do with the number of COVID cases. Is there a way that we could talk about the association between the number of 5G cell towers and COVID cases while controlling for that other variable population density? So from a path diagram standpoint, you could imagine there being one X and two Ys, a Y1 and a Y2. And we think that both Y1 and Y2 depend to some extent on X. So the question is, does that X variable entirely account for the relation between Y1 and Y2 if you partial it out of both? Not semi-partial, partialing it out of both. And a useful way to think about that within a regression context is, imagine you went off to the side and did a regression using X to predict Y1, and you got all the residuals, all the leftover stuff in Y1 that X couldn't account for. And then you went off to the other side. And you did a simple regression using X to predict Y2. And you got all the residuals from that, all the parts of Y2 that X couldn't account for. You've got the residuals on Y1 and the residuals on Y2. And the question is, do they correlate? The Pearson correlation between those residuals of Y1 after partialing out X and Y2 after partialing out X, that Pearson correlation is a partial correlation. For those of you who think in terms of path diagrams, what we're really doing is asking whether there is any connection between the two error terms that we have, the error term for the first dependent variable, Y1, and the error term for the second dependent variable, Y2, 
or whether the entirety of the relation between y1 and y2 is accounted for by the mutual influence of x. So I like partial correlations from the standpoint of helping us to think about systems where there might be spurious variables accounting for relations or not accounting for them. But I don't like them in the regression scenario because I think they actually don't correspond to the way we think about the model in regression. We tend to think about it in terms of multiple x's and a y, whereas I think of partial correlation as being more about multiple y's and an x. Getting in the Wayback Machine and going all the way back to Spearman mm -hmm. in 1904, what you just described really was the birth of factor analysis. If you have a set of dependent measures that all share some underlying cause, where that cause may be a latent variable, mm -hmm. then evidence to support that model is when you estimate that underlying cause and remove its influences, those residuals are no longer correlated with one another. The IRT factor analysis land, that's called conditional independence. Mm -hmm. When you look at what's left over, it is unrelated. So returning to the multiple regression model, we have four measures of effect that you often get. A B, a standardized B, a squared partial, and a squared semi-partial. And it's just really important to know that all four of those are rescaling of the same effect. Another really important thing is it's not like one of those is going to be significant and two are not. It's no different than saying you have some length of something and you've got an estimate in inches and in centimeters and in smoots. Do you know about mm. smoot? I don't know about smoots. Somebody out there who lives in Boston knows about this. Okay. But a bunch of guys got drunk one night and measured a bridge over the Lawrence River in smoots. And he was a student and they used him as a unit of measure. I looked it up just now. Are you ready? The bridge was eventually measured to be 364.4 smoots long. That equates to 2,035 feet or 620.1 meters. Wow, I did not know that. You have that little bit of the Venn diagram between X1 and Y that is free of all other predictors. And these are just four different ways of evaluating the magnitude of that effect. They're just different metrics. Is it rise over run in the raw metric? That's B. Is it rise over run in a standardized metric? That's standardized B or B star or beta. Is it scaled as the proportion of unique variability with respect to all of Y? That's the squared semi-partial. Is it scaled as the proportion of unique variability with respect to the residual of Y? That's the squared partial. Hmm. And my two-bit hankering when I do it myself is in a paper, I will report the raw B, the standard error, and the p-value. And then in a parentheses, I will report the standardized B and the squared semi-partial. Hmm. In and out, nobody gets hurt. I think that's a very nice way to put everything that you need all in one place. I'm going to give you that one. That's good. Ooh. Hang on a sec. Did I do what Dr. Michelle told me? Yes, that was a positive affirmation of Patrick. Good, that counts for today. All right. Good to get that out of the way early on. Check. Can I change horses midstream? <laughs> what makes this day different from all others? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Are you familiar with the term fool me once? <laughs> Intimately. 
Yes. Yeah, on a daily basis. Uh-huh. So we've got the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Mm-hmm. Or as George Bush so eloquently put. There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says fool me once, shame on, shame on you. If fool me, we can't get fooled again. One of the things we said we were going to do in this season was to do some check-ins with people we've spoken to earlier. Yeah. Our inaugural launching of this little tidbit was Ethan. Oof. The term bloodbath comes to mind. <laughs> or the Dutch version of bloodbath. Bloodbath. <laughs> so I'm a little hesitant to try it a second time, mm. but I thought we might give it a go and check in with someone from last year and see what she is up and about in the real world. Are you with me on this one? Uh, maybe. It depends. Who is this? Let's have it be a surprise. Oh, okay. <laughs> Does this person know that we're reaching out? Don't worry your pretty little head. I'll take care of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Certainly everyone who's listened to the podcast remembers 40 episodes ago. But for those of you who may not, Amanda Montoya described some research she was doing with a very talented undergrad named Kat. And we'll play a little blurb of that here to remind you. Kat's working on both writing our scripts to help with the regular recruitment process and some Monte Carlo simulations to investigate how the new method works in comparison to other approaches. I'm super proud of Kat for working on this. It's very ambitious. We are incredibly fortunate to have Kathleen Lamarck Navarrete join us, but she goes by the street name Kat. Welcome, Kat. <laughs> yes, please. Kat is good enough. <laughs> Thank you so much. Welcome, Kat, and my apologies in advance. Did we have you sign what we now call the Ethan Agreement? I'm pretty sure I did. Excellent. Then it is nice to have you here. No vicious and unprovoked attacks. No, no, not today. So it's just a check-in, Kat, is to see kind of what you're doing out in the world. Just as a starting point, tell us where are you out in the world right now? What are you doing? Oh, where do I start? It feels like it's been a million years since the last year. Um, <laughs> pretty much what I'm up to is I graduated from UCLA in June. So I got my BA. Yay. After that, I took a well-deserved break and I did pretty much nothing for like a solid month. I was like, no one talked to me. I'm not using my brain academically. I'm going to relax. It was as if you're tenured. Yeah, pretty we, much. <laughs> okay. We call that Tuesday. <laughs> That's the goal, right? <laughs> I then actually was brought on to my current lab, Amanda's lab, as the lab manager. But that position's only part-time. So I actually was able to get a job as a luxury sales associate at Louis Vuitton in my free time. So Whoa. that way I could have a full-time income. <laughs> now, are you a luxury sales associate or are you a sales associate of luxury <laughs> goods? Because those seem different. You know, I like to think of myself as a luxury sales associate. Okay. Because <laughs> you could also be, in principle, a luxury sales associate at Walmart. Absolutely. <laughs> and you just happen to be at Louis Vuitton. Absolutely. All right. 
So Greg and I both will expect handbags following this conversation. <laughs> of, course, of course. Tell us how your project that Amanda described with the propensity score and rolling recruitment, that sounded extraordinarily cool. So I actually was able to finish up. Um, I submitted as my honors thesis. And for a very recent update, we were finally okayed for human participants real humans Weird. <laughs> so we're finally able to interview real people and get their actual information to run the study without it being just computer generated we're also doing a monte carlo simulation right now but i'm just so excited to be able to run real people <laughs> so one of the first lessons for the people who work with me is to avoid real people at all costs so it's a different mentorship model i guess that amanda has going on there yeah, actually, I'm pretty sure this is the first quarter that she does real participants because I've been with her for like over a year now and we've never done real participants. You've had all of what, a quarter and a half of actual UCLA instruction because of the pandemic? What was that like? Yeah, that was quite a roller coaster. I was a transfer student, so I did community college and then went to UCLA, had a quarter and a half and then went online. And I got to say, for me, it actually wasn't that bad. I do focus a lot better online and in my own space. So I did get that pro. But I know for a lot of other people, it was not that easy. Specifically graduating after that and then trying to go into any sort of workforce, you just kind of forget your social cues. So that was just a whole nother thing where you have to be like, okay, I have all this knowledge. I passed all these classes. I have a degree. What do I do with that to make it actually get me a career? Do you want to explain the concept of social cues to Patrick briefly? You know, I wish I could. <laughs> we're, we're, yeah, we're, our time is limited. So if your honors project is the short con, tell us about your long con. <sighs> Initially, right out of my undergrad, I was planning on going straight to a PhD program. After that whole, oh, I finished online and, you know, COVID situation, I was like, I think I need to take some time to make sure that I really want to do this. Because normally I would just kind of go with the flow and do what I thought what I wanted to do. Um, so I actually took the year off and now I'm actually considering taking another year off before committing to a program so I can really make sure that this is what I want to do, the way I can fully commit. I'm actually looking into master's programs to be able to combine my quantitative psych, but make it a little bit more criminology based, mm. which is a little bit more of a niche place that I'm trying to find. Some really remarkable statistical and methods works comes out of the study of criminology, quantitative criminology, crime curves, a lot of that stuff. So that's really interesting. That's a very messy world data-wise. I just like that, I guess. The messier, the better. <laughs> How is it that you came to the interest in the criminological aspect of this? It's actually the reason why I got into psychology as a whole. I was raised in the Valley, in the San Fernando Valley in California, which isn't the safest area, but it's not the worst. And I think the older I got, I still was very interested why people would put themselves in these positions to be willing to harm others. Mm -hmm. So that's honestly what drew me into it. I just don't understand that. And I would love to know a little bit more about that. But I think finding the stats position in that was even better for me because I'm just a little bit more stats oriented. But you see yourself primarily as interested in criminology and bringing your quantitative skills to bear on those kinds of problems. Is that right? I think so. One thing that we invested in on the podcast was a Wayback Machine. So you can get into it and go back in time and do all sorts of fun things. Greg insists on going back in time and slapping people. Mm -hmm. And this has come up repeatedly. <laughs> 
what if you got in the Wayback Machine and went back a couple of years ago as an undergrad trying to get into this field? What do you wish that you knew then that you know now that you could either share with other undergrads who are thinking about doing a similar trajectory or... Equally importantly, with faculty who are trying to loop undergrads into this field of research. Honestly, I think my answers for both of those would be a little bit different because I think the upcoming generations are a lot more aware of the fact that they're humans first and then academics second. And I think that's really key because for me, it was years of just academics, academics, academics. I worked four jobs, did all these board positions for years. And now I would have told myself, calm down, go out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. have a laugh and then like clock back in on Monday. But for advisors um, trying to bring in undergrads, I would remind them of that because I think not to age anybody, but I think you forget what it was like at that time to be so stressed Mm -hmm. out about your future, to be in a position where you don't really know what's happening and you're kind of just going with the flow. You're taking classes that people said, hey, take this, hey, do that, get a job, get experience. And you forget what it's like in that overwhelming spot. So just remember that they're probably trying their best, be there to help them out, guide them a little bit, but don't overwhelm them. Because sometimes I think I've had experiences with different advisors where they're just trying to get you to do too much without realizing that they're getting you to do too much. So I really only have one more question. Anything you want to tell us about Amanda Montoya? Should we, is there anything we should know? Is there any dirt, any scoop? Yeah, it's just between the three of us. Yeah, we promise we won't yeah. tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Amanda's the best. Amanda's the best. She's honestly one of the only people that, that has truly like believed in me when because she's seen me in some low times during COVID. She's a very humane advisor. And I think I really appreciated that because she really took into account that mental health matters. You matter. Your code will probably figure itself out later. Take care of yourself first. I'm really glad that you said that about mentorship. I know that it's something that's very important to both Patrick and I, me. (laughs) Drop the Patrick and what are you left with? Happiness. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, this is what I do for fun. You had a point there, Hancock? You were like started a sentence and then just stopped. Okay, I saw a laser pointer. No, just that I really appreciate you bringing up the importance of mentorship, and it's lovely to hear that you were blessed with a good mentor. And I hope that it encourages you to find your way back to quantitative methods in some way or another, whether in service of a substantive area or in service of the quant itself. And and I really appreciate you taking the time to update us today. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for having me on here. I was was so excited when you sent me that email. This has been great fun. And if you could get those bags to us by maybe next week, that'd be great. Absolutely. Do we want to pick out colors or? You know, I'm just going to surprise based on like just the energy I felt. We'll just next day it over to you. (laughs) Thank you so much and take care and stay safe and stay in contact. Absolutely. Thanks, Kat. Bye-bye. Well, that was fun. That was totally fun. You and I have a chance to interact with people at all different stages of their career. And it was really nice to find out what's going on with someone who really has such a bright future laid out in front of them, unlike us. And she's going to rip off some handbags for us. Shh. Christmas shopping, done and done. (laughs) All right, ma'am, that's all I got. All right, thanks. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. It was, and we hope you all have found this maybe remotely entertaining. We're just trying to mix things up a little bit. Mm -hmm. So as always, thank you for your time. We sincerely appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much, everybody. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you procrastinate to avoid those piles of assignments awaiting grading. And please leave us a review. 
You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. Or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get awesome Quantitude merch at Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. We were just days away from our major rebrand as Meta when that hack from Facebook beat us to it. Quantitude has been brought to you by our own personal experience, reminding you that if you agree to give a remote talk at a conference in Sweden, it is not 9 a.m. all over the world. By Google Scholar Counts. Thank goodness they count the number of times your paper was cited and not the number of times it was actually read. And by Quantitude Zoom meeting tip number 22. Log into the faculty meeting a few minutes early, turn your camera and microphone on, offer an enthusiastic hello to everyone, and log out the moment the chair starts the meeting in full screen mode and go for a run. This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.